We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dig- dig- dignity of man. Duck and cover. Remember that? Growing up in the 50s and 60s, we were afraid of the Russians. Very afraid. Not only did they have atomic bombs, but their government. As kids, we saw public service announcements on our black and white TVs about giant jackbooted thugs stomping down on free people across Europe and the world. They were obsessed with secrets. The truth was something that had to be severely crushed. Freedom was their enemy. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion. We were so proud to live in America, which treasured all those freedoms, and we knew the whole world looked up to us and wanted the freedoms that we have. Of course, today we are bombarded with endless news about Russian hacking, interfering with our democracy, their rather apparent links with both the Trump campaign and administration. Of course, that's disturbing, and it may well end with the end of the Trump regime, we can hope. But below that flashy theatrical drama unfolding is a concern that, with the incredible fall of the Soviet Union some 20 years ago, our only rival for for world power, our government, the government of the United States, has actually become rather chillingly like our former enemy. Our guest today warns, slowly Seemingly inexorably, the U.S. is becoming more like the former Soviet Union. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union's dominance and control of places like Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, East Germany, and much of Eastern Europe, along with their defeat in Afghanistan, it seems the empire that filled the vacuum left by them is also in what our guest today calls, quote, a slow-motion collapse, end of quote. Most obviously, the world is laughing at our new president— Not only is our formerly unquestionable dominance of the world drifting away, but what we value most of all about the United States of America, the many traditional freedoms which we have for all of our existence taken for granted, now being seriously eroded. And we can't blame the Russians. We must take stock of where we are and quickly and see what we need to do to regain our treasured tradition of freedom. Well, I'm very pleased to have with us as guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive, William Estory. Bill, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Bert. That was a great introduction. Well, thank you. Bill Estory, is uh, is this a store or a story? It is a story, yes. Okay. It's that Italian. Ah, I love it. Ah, great. Uh, <laughs> I often say people who say America is the greatest country in the world have never been to Italy. Uh, <laughs> William Estory is a retired lieutenant colonel, USAF, and history professor. 
His personal blog is Bracing Views. Today, we're going to discuss his new article for Tom Dispatch called America's Real Red Scare. He says, there's a real red scare, America, and it's right here in the homeland. For the last half of the 20th century, there were two superpowers competing in so many ways for dominance of developing nations as well as the more obvious nuclear arms race. Then, of course, in 1989, the bottom dropped out of the Soviet Union and collapsed into its component parts. The loud triumphalism on the part of the U.S. was overwhelming, and it still goes on. It was obvious to the world who won and who lost. The phrase, nature abhors a vacuum, is attributed to Aristotle. So in so many ways, many of which we will discuss, the U.S. rushed in to fill that vacuum. And that is indeed disturbing. There is the most obvious new version of a Red Scare, the distinct possibility that Vladimir Putin and the Russian mafia hijacked our most recent election, placing in power a president who will happily do their bidding, somewhat mindlessly. But a less obvious and posing far more lasting and substantial damage is another aspect. As you write, more than a generation after defeating the Soviet Union in the Cold War, the United States of 2017 seems to be doing its level best to emulate some of the worst aspects of its former foe and once rival superpower, end of quote. And you also write, whatever Trump campaign officials, Russian oligarchs, or Vladimir Putin himself did or didn't do, America's Soviet problem is all around us, end of quote. As a kid, what frightened me most in the Red Scare of that area was the authoritarianism of the Russians. It was so different from what we had, and it was frightening. Your first example of this authoritarianism taking hold in America is what you see as, quote, the ever-expanding powers exercised by a national security state. This makes me think of that great movie about the security state in East Germany, The Lives of Others. Let's start off with what the Americans, uh, America's national security state looks like to you. Yeah, Bert, um, I'm glad you mentioned The Lives of Others because that's one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, amazing. Uh, it, it really is a, a greatly disturbing movie because it shows that if you're being surveilled all the time, uh, you know, pr- democracy and freedom depends upon privacy, and we have less of that now in the United States with the expansion of the surveillance state. And that especially is true after 9-11, of course, with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the fact that we now have 17 different uh, intelligence agencies. Now, obviously, not all of them are surveilling us, uh, but the powers of that, of that national security state, the fact that we spend $80 billion a year just on gathering intelligence uh, domestically and uh, overseas, uh, should disturb uh, all Americans. Yeah, it, it really should. I mean, the, the, the term conservative is, is thrown around a lot today. Uh, it, to me, I don't know how you could possibly be a conservative and not be very, very worried about conserving our traditional liberties and what the national security state uh, has done to that is, is kind of scary. As yeah, a, that, that's absolutely true. And it, it's interesting to me to see that, you know, my, my writings for, for TomDispatch.com, right. uh, you know, I've been writing for them for, uh, for Tom Engelhart for, for 10 years. Uh, and my articles, you know, mostly go to uh, liberal sites or leftist sites or progressive sites, you know, whatever you want to call them. But, my, but they also go to libertarian sites. Okay. You know, I, I think that Lou Rockwell... Uh, picked up my latest piece, the one we're talking about today, about this, the real red scare is we should be looking at the mirror at the way 
we're emulating the, the former Soviet Union. So I think there are some, you know, libertarians or, or old-fashioned conservatives right. who are concerned. As we all should be. I mean, I, you know, I've been a, a liberal Democrat all my life, but in, in this sense, you know, I think with what's happened to America with the incredible turn toward the authoritarianism and the uh, surveillance state, the national security state, I feel like I'm one of the genuine conservatives. I want to, cons- I mean, it's about conserving what we value. And Absolutely. so many so-called conservatives are okay with this new authoritarianism. As a then young lieutenant in the Air Force in 1986, you had some experience uh, with uh, the recognition by President Reagan in particular that the Soviet's Berlin Wall was, as you say, a symbol of ruthless communist oppression. Now, as compared to our current president's infatuation with a new wall, that's that wall separating the people. Uh, it's different because the Berlin Wall was separating the people of the same city, whereas what he's talking about is to protect one country against invasions by rapists and murderers of another country. From that perspective, are, are the two walls different enough so that we should not be troubled by Trump's what he called big, fat, beautiful wall? Yeah. Uh, well, here's the thing. I, you remember remember that inspiring call again. You know, I was I was a young lieutenant in the military in the 1980s, and and remember that inspiring call from President Reagan to when he said, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Right. Uh, it was tear inspiring. down the Berlin Wall. End the you know end the siege mentality. You know, uh, allow freedom. Uh, allow uh, the the free interchange of peoples. Uh, I think." As far as a, a mindset is concerned, a mindset of fear, a mindset of you know separating people, you know us versus them, you know I think Trump's wall, his big fat beautiful wall, isn't that much different from the Berlin Wall. Sure, historically the context is different, but the mindset, yeah. the mindset of fear, of separation, of of uh, of in some cases. Um, you know the vilification of of the other. Right. Uh, you know, certainly with with the Soviets, you, you know, you had that sense. You know, their propaganda was was that you know the West was corrupt, the West was right. decadent. Right. You know, we we need the wall in a way to keep out the decadence of the West. Absolutely. The, the exploitative capitalism. Well, in, in a way, you know, Trump has flipped that on its head and, and saying, you know, we need we need this wall to, to keep out the the exploitative Mexicans. So, you know, I don't think the, the mindset is totally different. Yeah, it's true. And, and I, I, a lot of the Soviet propaganda, we all remember those two words going together so nicely, was that the wall was there to protect the people of East Berlin and to keep out the bad influences. Very, very similar to, you know, give us uh, protection. What about America's foreign policy now? The Vietnam War was painted incorrectly, as it seems, as the U.S. helping a defenseless, freedom-loving people threatened by communist oppressors from outside their country. And in the struggle between the two superpowers, we were, at the time, both competing for the hearts and minds of the people of the developing world. Right. Uh, and, and, and I remember John Kennedy, uh, I think, said something like, uh, you know, where, where uh, uh, change is impossible, uh, revolution, where reform is impossible, revolution is inevitable. We don't have to compete anymore because uh, they're gone. JFK and the others noted that we would win in places like Central and South America if we showed them we had a better way to escape poverty and to gain a better life 
than the Soviets could offer. Now, without competition, uh, I, I, we don't have any. Surely that must have affected our foreign policy outreach toward third world countries right now. I, I wonder how different it is now that uh, you know, we're not competing for their hearts and minds anymore. Yeah, I, I think in a, in a very strange way. You remember our, our foreign policy vis-a-vis the Soviet Union was all about one word, containment. You right. know, we, were, we were all about containing the communist spread and stopping international communism from taking over the world. And, and once the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, obviously we were euphoric, and sure. you remember that, that euphoria we had in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, but in a way, you know, the Soviet Union was containing us as well. Uh, it was containing oh. American ambition. It was containing, you know, American hubris. Uh, and once the Soviets were gone, you sort of saw all this pent-up energy that we had. We, we had this vision, you know, the people like uh, uh, Dick Cheney, for example, and the, and the project New American Century. And right. We were going to, to change everything. We were going to reshape the world because now we had won. And, and I think... In trying to do that, in trying to reshape the world, you know, what, what instrument did we use more than any other? It was the U.S. military. Yes. Uh, and in taking this militaristic approach to, to reshaping the world, well, you know, we became very much like the Soviet Empire, which also relied on its military to reshape the world. I mean, one of the points I make in my article, as you know, and that really shocks me, uh, based upon where I was at in the early 1980s, is the way that the America, the way the United States today dominates the world global arms trade. I mean, we are accountable for more than half of the world's global arms trade. And, and, the, and the big, you know, big thing that uh, Trump was boasting about in his foreign right. you know, overseas trip to Saudi Arabia was the fact that you know, we had $110 billion in, in arms deals with, with the Saudis. Right. And, of course, that's nothing new. I mean, Obama no. was doing it, too, and George W. Bush and all the rest. But it's just something that continues to accelerate. And, and the idea of doing it militarily, having a gun pointed at your head, being under threat by a tremendous, you know, overwhelming military it's not necessarily going to win the hearts and minds. And, and what brings allegiance? What, what brings somebody to, you know, in some other country to, to want to work for the United States, to want to defend the United States? Is it military threat alone? Hearts and minds, you know, it really, really matters. And now we don't have to care about that. So what is the world doing? Well, we can see it's, you know, there's some problems here and there that are uh, a little bit outside the old box, shall we say, of the, the Soviet Union versus us. There's all this independent, you know, ISIS stuff. They see right. uh, it's, it's unbelievable that they do what they do, but they do. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is William Astori, retired lieutenant colonel with the USAF. He's got uh, a new article for Tom Dispatch called America's Real Red Scare. The people under the thumb of the Soviet state certainly knew what they were being told uh, was true, was in fact lies. And, you know, what they, what any kind of things, I mean, it was flipped around, real 1984-ish stuff that, you know, if this is, alleged, you know, supposedly true, officially true, it was lies. Now, I'm going to read something from John Kennedy from April 27, 1961. Uh, it's a paragraph and a half. He, this is from President John Kennedy. The very word secrecy is repugnant 
in a free and open society. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, he goes on, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not to permit to the extent that it is in my control. And no official of my administration, again, this is Kennedy talking, whether his rank men at the time, is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. My goodness, how we have changed since then. What is your reaction to those words from where we find ourselves in America now, in direct contradiction to the sentiment expressed by the president, uh, John F. Kennedy? We seem to be obsessed with secrecy. Your reaction. Yeah, those are great words by uh, by uh, John F. Kennedy, and very idealistic. And uh, I don't think he lived up to him. <laughs> Probably no well, president does. Yet, um, as 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 you say, uh, we have a cult of secrecy now. Uh, I, I I remember reading. Uh, I mean, something like you know, ninety two million documents a year are now classified by our government, and and that was a few years ago. Uh, and you know, this I, my. Uh, my feelings about secrecy, you know, in in the military, I had a I had a secret clearance. You know, I, I never had a top secret clearance because I, I never needed one. I never I never needed I never had the the need to know. But you know, secrecy is something that should be used sparingly. Uh, JFK's words are are absolutely right. You can't have a democracy without uh, transparency. Uh, and what what we see today uh, is the crackdown on on dissent. The persecution of uh, of whistleblowers, uh, and and that leads to a climate that is really it, it stifles dissent, uh, and that's exactly what it's intended to do. Wow! Yeah, it's true, and and to to uh, villainize those who leak information, I find it fascinating that the Trump White House is trying to focus all the attention on those horrible leakers. They're daring to tell the truth, and they're committing a crime, which maybe they are committing a crime in leaking it. I'm not sure. But it used to be, you know, American heroes have been uh, uh, leakers and truth-tellers and whistleblowers. You know, there's so many throughout the years. Uh, For example, uh, uh, Snowden, Edward Snowden. You know, a lot of people uh, look to him. I mean, he showed that the U.S. was doing stuff that the American people really wouldn't want to be supportive of. I mean, there, there was actual murders that happened of innocent civilians. Uh, and, and he did that not to... It's amazing to me how some people can call him a traitor because he uh, you know, broke the secrecy. And some of these... Uh, it's interesting. You must see every now and then... Uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, there was a truck uh, driving by with three big American flags waving in the breeze. These these super patriots, were, you know, this cloak of patriotism. And maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me a lot of these so-called super patriots would want to hold secrets, would want to have no questioning of the authoritarian government. You know, that th- those people are traitors. It's just, it's so interesting to me how that same language could have been used in, in you know, 1950s uh, Soviet Union. 
Sure. Yeah, I mean, any any authoritarian state, you know, wants wants conformity. You know, that they they want they want their citizens, or I, I should probably say subjects. Subjects, you know, yes. They want their uh-huh. subjects to 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 conform and, and not question uh, authority. But the, the whole idea of our of our republic is 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 an informed citizenry. That's Absolutely. why we're supposed to have you know freedom of speech as well as freedom of the press. Uh, and this is something that you see also in in the you know the former Soviet Union. You saw a a state controlled media, and and here in the United States, yes. you know people are like ah well we don't have that. You know yeah. we have uh, we have all these networks and we have lots of sources. But when you think about it, take a look at our media. Uh, most of our mainstream media, at least, is, is corporate-owned yes. by, by giant entities, corporations like you know, General Electric, for example. Uh, uh-huh. and, and in many cases, the, the same corporate entity that owns a, a media network is also one that is a military defense contractor, which is why you have someone like Brian Williams going on television talking about the beautiful Tomahawk missiles that we were launching uh, against Syria. Uh, you know, you could have you could have heard that say in Korea, North Korea, or or the former Soviet Union. Yeah, comrade, we are now launching our beautiful missiles against our enemies. Uh, it, it really is shocking. It is amazing, really. I mean, that the, the various they're corporate owned media, and and who owns the government to a large extent? But these same big corporations, and a lot of people are really angry about that. I think justifiably because. You know, there was this uh, War of Independence in 1776 when it's supposed to be a government of, by, and for the people, not some powerful special interests like there had been. I mean, Russia today, let's face it, there's this big oligarchy there, the Russian mafia. It's amazing how many people have disappeared, actually been killed. Now, we're not anywhere close to that Yet, but that's that's the post-Soviet uh, Russia uh, that's that's going on now. But to have this concentrated media that that just puts out the same official news, it's very like this is the official point of view that the Americans are supposed to hear. That this that anything else, yeah, don't believe it. It's not true. That's a little right. bit scary. Well, your essay in Tom Dispatch fo- focuses on eight points which show disturbing similarities between the old Soviet state and America today. You write, the list of Soviet problems, vintage 1986, should have a familiar ring to it, since it sounds uncannily like a description of what's wrong with the United States today. The first is an authoritarian surveillance state. We, we've been uh, over that uh, a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you want to say any more about that or we can- Go into this. You know the the one the one thing I would I would add to that, and I, I know I said it in the article, but we really do have a, a, an imperial presidency, and as a military, as a former military officer, retired military officer, uh, it, it's it's disturbing to me that we we really as a country uh, have not issued a formal declaration of war since the attack on Pearl Harbor in in 1941. Uh, you know, we've we've continued. We've given the the executive branch, the, the presidency, so much power to wage war with very little oversight by by the Congress. Yes. And again, that's not the way it is it is supposed to work. Uh, the executive branch simply has too much power, uh, and especially since our foreign policy nowadays is dominated by the military. So much so that the State Department is really just a tiny branch of the Pentagon, and the State Department under President Trump 
is being defunded and de-emphasized even more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how the I mean the Soviet Union. What a, there was a, a picture of the Soviet Union, and for that matter, North Korea now, of the uh, military really running things as opposed to what our founders intended. Personally, and I suspect you agree, I like the Constitution. You know, I think the founders had it right when they said Congress shall have the authority to declare war. Congress and only Congress. That obviously has gone by the wayside. And you picture the, the Soviet military and the North Korean military, these guys with tons of ribbons, medals weighing them down. We see this now, and this is exactly who President Trump has turned over foreign policy power too and it's just it's rather shocking i mean you see these guys who just strut around with these these ribbons and medals many of which are earned i'm sure but it's supposed to be a civilian run military we had that in the korean war when uh, uh truman uh you know shut down macarthur because it's supposed to be run by the civilians well your second uh point of the eight is an economy dependent on global weapons sale Wow, is that ever us these days? Uh, talk about that a little bit more, if you would, please, Bill. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, uh, you know, I, re- I remember when, uh, you know, back back in the 1930s, if we can go back that far, yeah, uh, you know, the United States uh, was um, was obviously a little bit more uh, isolationist. Uh, but coming out of World War One, uh, you know, there were the Nye Committee hearings, and a very popular book back then was called The Merchants of Death. And here in the United States, you know, we were attacking European countries uh, and, and European arms merchants uh, and saying, you know, these, these are the ones who are guilty for, for, for building all these, you know, machine guns and artillery and weaponry that has led to the deaths of, of millions of people. Yeah. Uh, and, and we were advocating, to a certain extent, uh, limits on on arms, and and yet you know here we are, uh, you know about eighty years later, and, and we have become uh, the merchants of death. Uh, we dominate uh, the world's arms trade uh, so much so that it seems like you know we go around to various countries, and the announcement that comes out is uh, an, another record-breaking arms deal right. with with uh, the Saudis, for example, or more military aid for for Israel. Uh, and when you think about it, the last thing unstable areas like the Middle East, the last thing they need uh, is more weaponry, more arms. Uh, in fact, we sent so so many, so much weaponry to Iraq, for example, that that much of it went missing. You know, over a billion dollars worth of small arms went went missing in Iraq. Yeah. We're we're ending up arming arming ISIS. We're we're sending so many, selling so much weaponry that, and, and then it gets captured. We're we're arming the enemy. It's so true, and you know the the. I just think of Yemen right now. You know where the Saudis have gotten even more weapons, and they're uh, doing a a horrible uh, war that's causing a, a near famine in Yemen. What is that going to do? Of course, it's going to make people angry. <laughs> you know when when you know they're just oppressed by uh, you know incredibly superior uh, military and. They might not have the military. Uh, they don't have the big weapons, but guess we've seen what they do. They get trucks, you know, and just drive it into people. They use knives on people. And you're right. Where does ISIS get most of its weapons? They're American-made. We are the, the supplier, as you say, of, of death, basically, 
you know, throughout the world. And, you know, is that, how, how different is that from, you know, the old Soviet Union? They were known as, uh, you know, they had the big military. They were crushing people everywhere. I mean, you remember uh, seeing in, uh, in uh, Prague and Czechoslovakia when their military came in and crushed the descent of the people. And they, they did that throughout uh, Eastern Europe. And it doesn't last long. It may last for a while. You can keep people down for a while militarily. But Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me, Bert. You know, the, the old symbol of the, of the Soviet Union, the symbol that probably comes to mind as far as weapons are concerned, is, is either a Kalashnikov assault, assault rifle or, or a tank, like a T-62 tank. Uh-huh. And, and I think in a way, uh, and that's what I think a lot of people, when they thought of the Soviet Union, say, in the 1970s, 1960s, and, and uh, you know, the, these interventions in uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, right. and so on. Well, I think, I think now when people think of Americans, they probably think uh, many people, the first image that comes to mind is a combat jet, you know, a jet dropping bombs, right. or, or a drone, right. you know, when, when they think of America. Oh. Uh, and, and, and that disturbs me as well. You know, it used to be that America was synonymous with, with, with freedom or with maybe with Coca-Cola right. or something like that, um, something rather benign, uh, a consumer product. Uh, but now it's, it's our jets, it's our drones, it's our bombs. That is very disturbing. Well, one great thing that we still make here is music and art. That's about it that the world likes. But the rest of it, you're right. They think of our our arms. We are the arms dealer to the world. And that means death. People know that. I mean, you know, I think of like the secret war in Cambodia. Well, guess what? To the people of Cambodia, it wasn't particularly secret. It was only secret to us. They knew there was a big war uh, being made on them. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, William J. Astori, retired lieutenant uh, colonel, USAF. And we're talking about his article in Tom Dispatch, America's Real Red Scare, the similarities between us and the old, ugly Soviet Union. Third on your list of eight is what you describe as bent on nuclear domination. One would think that nuclear weapons are not even relevant to the threats we face today. What is it with this nuclear domination that the Trump, you know, does he just like these big toys? I, mean, I don't well, know. Well, you know, yeah, I, I, certainly I think that's part of it for, for President Trump. Uh, well, I, I think he doesn't, at least unless they've explained it to him, um, and hopefully they have, uh, when candidate Trump really was completely ignorant of, of, the, of our nuclear forces. I remember watching the debates and they were talking about the nuclear triad, uh, and it was obvious that Trump had no idea what 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 right. the uh, moderator was talking about. <laughs> you know, he had no idea that the triad referred to you know submarine launch ballistic missiles, you know land based missiles, and and air force uh, you know bombers. That there's that there were three legs to this nuclear triad. But you know, it, again, it pains me that in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan uh, and Mikhail Gorbachev actually talked seriously about trying to eliminate nuclear weapons. Uh, but at the very least, even though that dream didn't come true, yeah. uh, we embarked on serious efforts to reduce nuclear weapons. Uh, and and those, those negotiations were, were critical uh, to lowering the threat of nuclear war. Yeah. And yet, again, you look 30 years later, and now we have proposals 
to spend something like a trillion dollars to modernize our, our nuclear triad over the next 30 years or so. And, and it, it's, it's an almost unimaginable sum when you think about it, a trillion dollars to update our nuclear arsenal. And, and as Trump said, you know, so that we'll always be on the top of the pack. It's like, what are you saying? I mean, we, we, we already have thousands of nuclear warheads. Right. We have enough warheads, uh, as well as the Russians and a few other countries, to destroy the Earth you know, many times over. Yeah. What we need to do is eliminate nuclear weapons. We need to reduce and eliminate. Uh, we certainly don't need to spend a trillion yeah. dollars. Uh, it's, it's a mindset that's straight out of the arms race of the Cold War, of the 1950s and 1960s, like like your intro, introduction, it, it's back to the duck and cover days. Well, I'll tell you, a few weeks ago when that whole North Korea thing was happening, I was more frightened then that a nuclear bomb could be tossed around than I have been in many decades. It, it seemed really possible. I mean, here we have a madman in Kim Jong-un and another one over here. And as you were talking, it, it, I started to wonder about... You know, there is the, the common good, you know, something that our founders were interested in, in having the government take care of, the common good. Huh. Yeah, those days, it seems, are, are really gone. We've, I wonder what percentage of their national budget the Soviets spent on military and what percentage of the uh, American budget that we spend on the military now. It's, it's got to be, I, I, I have no idea what the percentage would be, but it's a large portion. And yeah, sir- yeah, no, I think you know, I think the Soviets spent a higher figure, but that was because their economy was nowhere near as strong as ours. Right. You know, we have, we have a much bigger gross domestic product, oh. as I say. Massive. But but also, I, I think I should add to that that you know, when people look at American defense spending, they tend to look just at the Pentagon's budget, which is you know right. somewhere Very in the neighborhood of oh, you know, six hundred billion dollars or so. Uh, Often what is excluded is all of the additional spending yes. on the United States military, yes. including you know, nuclear weapons through the Department of Energy, Energy uh-huh. uh, various in- intelligence agencies. The Department of Homeland Security is uh, $70, $80 billion roughly a year. Then there's all the money spent on you know, veterans uh, and, and health care. You know, think of all the suffering veterans in the United States dealing with post-traumatic stress oh. disorder, oh, traumatic brain, brain injuries, and other injuries yeah. from all of these wars that, that, that we've been fighting over the last couple of decades. So when you add it all up, uh, we're actually spending a lot more on the military and the wars and, and, the, and the results of those wars that, you know, than, than most people realize. And in North Korea, the people are literally starving there, as far as we know, uh, but they're spending a huge portion of their uh, national economy on the military, you know. But we're so different from them. We're supposed to be different, you know. We're it's supposed to have something called a common good. Uh, let's see. Um, the fourth item you describe, we've talked about this somewhat on your on your list of uh, similarities, is imperialist and expansionist. You know, I, I remember many years ago I was I was working in a uh, Oh, a, a capitalist enterprise. And I, was, I got in a bit of an argument with the, uh, uh, one of the bosses there who was saying, we're not imperialist. Well, guess what? 
we are, and expansionist as well. And certainly the, the Soviet Union has long been, I mean, you know, in the First World War, before them, they were imperialist and expansionist. And oh, no, that's not like us, but uh, since Teddy Roosevelt came in, uh, yeah, we've been pretty imperialist and expansionist. So I guess that's another way we are like uh, our old enemies. Oh, sure. Well, I, I guess in a way, uh, <laughs> as a historian, um, you know, the United States has, has always been expansionist. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what riles people is the whole idea of, of empire, you know, that, uh, that traditionally even American historians have been very comf- uncomfortable with, right. with the notion that the United States is, is imperial, uh, because you know, we tend to think that, well, we, when we do expand, you know, number one, it's our manifest destiny, you know, right. God is on our side, uh-huh. uh, and we're bringing democracy to other, and freedom to other people, so, right. so the story goes. Yeah. Therefore, you know, we, we're not imperial. But, but when you take a closer look, you know, when you take a look at you know, the, the Spanish-American War, for example, and, and Cuba, oh, and the yeah. fact that we still, have, we still have Cuban territory at uh, Guantanamo, um, and, uh, and the fact that we have something like 800 overseas military bases, uh, and, and those 800 military bases overseas, they cost us over $100 billion every year to, to maintain, you know, to, to, to garrison and, and to maintain. You know, again, that's another enormous amount of money, something like $125 billion for those 800 uh, military bases. Uh, and then the fact that, that we are, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, well, ba- well, basically, no other country in the world uh, has, has sliced and diced the world into various military commands. Mm. So, as you know, you know, we have Africa Command or AFRICOM. Right, right. We have Central Command or, or Cent- CENTCOM. We have Northcom. You know, we we have literally have broken up the world into various military commands, uh, and and uh, and you know, each one of those headed up by a very powerful four-star general, uh, and and so uh, and we're involved in you know, sent, whether it's spending uh, uh, sending special operations forces on on training missions, or you know, sometimes on on military I- intervention. Uh, we're involved in something like 120 to 130 different countries yearly. And there's only something like roughly 195 countries in the world. (laughs) So it's just amazing uh, uh, the global reach that we have. And we were so critical of the Soviet Union for doing that very thing throughout Central America in particular. And then we went in and, you know, the people of Central America, they, I mean, let's face it, you know, a little bit of history there that, you know, they don't see us as, as, as fighting to protect their freedom. It's, it, we became a lot like the Soviet Union and having this military wanting to be all around the world. And does it make us safer? Um, maybe in some places, you know, I, we, we obviously need a military, we need national defense, but, uh, you know, at what price, at what price to the, uh, you know, this, the common good of America. And I remember back oh. in, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's interesting, Bert, what you say there with the, when you brought up Central America, it made me think that, you know, that's another interesting analogy can be made there with the former Soviet Union. Right. The former Soviet Union believed in the sphere, sphere of influence. You know, where basically they said, you know, Eastern Europe is our sphere of influence, hands-off America. Um, And and we basically said the the same thing. 
uh, with <laughs> with our, you know our intervention in uh, Central America, yeah. you know primarily for for economic interests. Uh, whereas basically this hey Soviet Union you know get out of Cuba you know get out of Nicaragua right. uh, get out of these countries. This is our sphere of influence. But then once the Soviet Union collapsed, instead of seeing you know a a, a you know Western Hemisphere sphere of influence protected by the that old Monroe Doctrine. Right. All of a sudden, America's sphere of influence became the world. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we could be doing business with them. It's like, I mean, back to Vietnam, you know, we're doing good business with Vietnam now. Well, guess what? We could have done that uh, once the French left. We could have done it before the French left. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, uh-huh. went, I went to the furniture sh- store about a year ago, uh-huh. and I was looking at beds to buy, and I, I saw on the, you know, the back of the headboard, made in Vietnam. Uh, made in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, our clothing, a lot of our clothing now, you know, made in China, yeah. but also made in Vietnam. And we have this opportunity to do business all, all over the world, and I, I think, you know, when people are friendly to us, when people look up to us like they did, or I, at least I think they did, uh, you know, in the 50s, because we were free. We, we, you know, we weren't this monolithic, uh, you know, global uh, military giant. It, it, it could be better for us, I think. You know, having fewer people angry at us uh, is a good idea, especially with all the crazy stuff they can do. And back in the old Red Scare, I would have never imagined this coming to my America. Your next item, number five, persecutes critics and dissidents. I never would have imagined that. The Trump administration is furious at leakers, whistleblowers who dare to reveal the truth. You know, they know that people like others, like Snowden and others, were deeply upset by the actions they discovered in places like Iraq, and they leaked what they could so that American people would, once they find out about it, put a stop to it, and we did. Now when it comes to leakers, apparently throughout the White House they call them criminals. Close to treason is a word, is a phrase they use, and they want all the focus to be on these bad leakers. A lot of American public is going along, turning truth-tellers into enemies of the state, which sounds rather Soviet to me. Your thoughts, Bill? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the whole idea, I remember Trump's rhetoric, of, you know, his criticism of, of when the media does uh, take him on. You know, he basically did say that that he saw the media as uh, the media critics as enemies of the state, yes. which is which is Soviet talk. God, really? Uh, it, it's just it's a shame that 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 brave whistleblowers and truth tellers like you know somebody like a, a Chelsea Manning, for example, right. or an Edward Snowden, uh, or even you know one of my friends, uh, Peter Van Buren, who who, oh, yeah. who who wrote the book, you know, we meant well yes. about his experiences you know, trying to rebuild Iraq, uh, you know, people who, who try to tell, you know, the unvarnished facts, uh, try to bring the truth to the American people, which is, you know, these people should be praised. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be put into prison or, you know, they shouldn't be, you know, threatened with, with losing their jobs or the, the, their pensions. Oh, no. uh, uh, and, um, you know, so, yeah, this is, this is something that, you know, I, I don't know why, so many people seem to identify with 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 the government, uh, yeah. rather rather than identifying with with uh, with with patriots yes. who are trying to do their best to to make government more transparent to the people. You know, we're all supposed to be you know citizens, yeah. and and ultimately we need to remember that that our politicians and the government. I know that this this seems like a silly thought, uh, idealistic. Oh, naive but but 
they're public servants. You know, the president is supposed to work for us. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, and it does seem to be the other way around. And so many people who would call themselves super patriots, you know, feel like they have to defend the president. And, and you know, the, the leader, fearless leader, uh, or uh, I don't remember who the name of the guy was in uh, 1984. But that's that's really, that's something different other than, conservatism defending the, the, the values of the Constitution. That's something else entirely. That's a lot more like the old Soviet Union. And if you dare, you know, to, to be a dissident, you know, you're gonna, I'm going to spy on you, report you, whatever, and have that uh, whole uh, apparatus there to uh, keep the lid on and keep things under control. But in a real free society, uh, you know, as John Kennedy said, secrets are not who we are. It is not who we are. Well, the Soviet Union also had... Uh, you know, was known for a lot of vodka being used, you know. And, and today we have internal problems like major drug abuse, inadequate health care, and a poisoned environment. Uh, that, that, is, that was part of the old Soviet Union, how, you know, they didn't have environmental protection. It seems like Trump's team is, is determined to dismember any and all environmental protection. So what about that as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think, I, and, and it goes even further than that, as you know, because uh, not only, not only uh, are we, you know, our environmental protections being uh, dismantled, uh, but you also have the, the very denial of climate change, you know, global warming. Right. Uh, you, have, you have a sort of twisted version of science being promulgated by, by Trump and, and by others. Uh, where, where, as as the famous saying goes, was it Kellyanne Conway who said, uh, "Alternative facts." <laughs> you know, you, you remember remember when the United States, you know, we we were the leaders in in, in pure research, right. uh, oh, yeah. and the Soviets, well, oh. you know, they they built great rockets and and they were good at applied research. But what America was known for was was freedom of research and deep respect for science. And now we have. Uh, you know Macron there, the, the 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 new French leader. You know, going on television, inviting American scientists, climate scientists who feel like they're being oppressed by the Trump administration. He's inviting them to come live in France. You know, imagine the reversal there. We used to invite Soviet dissidents to come, uh. Soviet scientists to come live in our country, where they could practice their science freely. And now we have other leaders of the free world, like, like uh, Macron, uh, inviting our scientists uh, to get away from oppression you know, here because of mm. you know, politics. It's a, it's a remarkable turnabout. Absolutely amazing. Who would have thunk it, as they say? And this whole drug abuse thing, you know, I mean, uh, they, they've had their well, problems with drug abuse as well, and now... Yeah, I, I, think, I think that comes, to a certain extent, from despair yes, and absolutely. a sense of hopelessness. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, when people uh, turn to alcohol, you know, that's a deadly drug just as well. And people had no sense of, of hope there and, you know, a poisoned environment. Uh, and another thing that we really uh, hated, I think I could say, about the old Soviet Union is a lot of the a large percentage of, of the Soviet Union's population found themselves as guests of the state, shall we say. They were right. imprisoned. Item seven on your list is extensive prison systems. How that's? I mean, we have a lot of our population in prison now. I wonder if you could talk about some of the similarities there. 
Yeah, well, it, it is it is shocking that that uh, uh, I guess I keep coming back to that word shocking, but but uh, again, when when I first entered the military, um, I, I think you know old versus now, about thirty years. I think our prison population has roughly gone up by a factor of five or six, five hundred percent or six hundred percent. Uh, in the last 30 years or so, we we now jail something like 2.3 million people uh, in the United States, and then there is about another, I think, three or four million people caught up in the justice system, you know, on parole or somehow right. involved. Uh, and and then of course, you know, back in the Bush years, we had black sites overseas. Oh, I'm yeah. sure these things still exist. Probably, um, yeah. We still have, you know, Guantanamo. We still have, you know, people. Uh, in in the military prison there at uh, Guantanamo uh, in Cuba, uh, and 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 um, you know, we, so we we have an extensive prison system. Oh yeah. Uh, that mass incarceration. Uh, in, in approach to to managing you know dissent in this country uh, that that relies on force that relies on violence. Yes. Uh, and they, as you know, there there have been people here in the United States. Uh, from the alt right movement and or from the far right that have, you know basically have have called for yes. uh, you know Muslims to be to be locked up or yeah. at least there, for there to be some kind of of registry uh, yeah. and, and, you know that kind of, Boy, of is, that is more than disturbing it it goes back to the internment of uh, the illegal internment you know of Japanese Americans right. you know, during World War Two. Yeah, and uh, so many people are, you know, if we could, this is my opinion, if we could deal with drugs as a health problem rather than a criminal problem, I think it would work out a lot better. But it's kind of this old Soviet mindset, you know, just lock them up, throw away the key. You know, we are the authority uh, and, and just the state is in control. Right. The eighth item on your list of eight is uh, a list, list of similarities to Soviet Russia is stalemated wars. Whoa. They got stuck in some stalemated wars, and I don't see it strengthening us right now. Talk about that, if you would, please. Oh goodness, yeah. Uh, well, isn't it sh- <laughs> isn't it shocking yet again that um, that we we were we were in a way uh, our our foreign policy experts were were in a way so happy when when the Soviet Union got bogged down in Afghanistan. You know that became a bleeding ulcer for for the Soviet Union. Yeah. It weakened them and contributed to their downfall. Absolutely. Uh, and yet, you got you got to hand it the Soviet Union. At least they got out <laughs> of the Afghanistan after ten years. Oh my God, We've now been there sixteen years, and it's not any There's better. Absolutely no end in sight. No end in sight whatsoever. We don't learn from that. There's one thing that wasn't on your list that that did occur to me uh, for a long that has occurred to me for a long time is how. Back in America, in the olden days, we used to have a lot of competition in things like department stores. Nobody else is talking about this, but this bothers me. Now there's basically one, Walmart. That, it kind of reminds me of the old Soviet state as well. You know, there wasn't free enterprise. There wasn't competition. It was the official Soviet this, the official Soviet that. That, that concerns me. And, you know, they kind of own the government. The, these powerful special interests that have taken over the markets and wiped out competition— did like the government and them seem to be kind of very similar uh you yeah know. absolutely I, and all all of these entities that are that are too big to fail they say, yeah really they also say too big to jail you know they they have so much power 
that they're able to evade uh, r- responsibility. You know, one, one thing that I didn't put on my list that, that occurred to me after I wrote the article is, is our education system. Oh, and, and I've written about this, but, you know, back in the Soviet Union, education was really all about trades. It was really training, huh. you yeah, know, educating yeah, engineers. And, and education was not really supposed to be about critical thinking. Right. You know, it used to be in our liberal democracy, you know, we, we wanted, we, we, we valued the liberal arts. Yes. We valued critical thinking. critical thinking. But now more and more, you hear uh, under the Trump administration, for example, uh, that education is really about training for a profession, for a job. Yeah. It's no longer about democracy and critical thinking. Oh, I know. That's such a huge loss, too. I mean, it really, really is. Education for education's sake, to learn history. They don't want people to learn history. They want people to just believe the official myth that they're handed. Around 1990, as we know, the republics of the old Soviet Union, which were under the thumb of the Soviet masters, became somewhat free agents when it fell apart. What you and I both find fascinating is that the currently United States, restless republics grumble about separating from the Union, like there's this term, Calexit, California. I mean, they are a big, big state. They could be a Republican themselves. And they're you know, going on their own and and uh, and uniting with uh, with Europe and the other countries in terms of sticking with the uh, Paris, uh, uh, you know, uh, environmental accords. This is quite real and perhaps unstoppable. I do not swear allegiance to the Trump vision of America. I think a lot of people feel the same. We we our vision, our allegiance is to what America used to stand for, and I. You know, I wonder about what that means for the uh, the future of a united uh, America, like the old Soviet Union when it fell apart. Yeah, we're we're, we're not so united. We we are we are very much divided today, and it, it is shameful when you we stop and think that it's not President Trump who's negotiating with countries like China with 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 climate change. It's Governor Jerry Brown right. of California. I know uh, who who's the sane one. You know who's out there yeah. uh, working for renewable energy, for for climate change, for uh, and then you know the obvious fact that that in many ways uh, investing in renewable energy is is a great job creator. Uh, it makes sense for America, uh, and yes. yes, you know the oh administration God, totally. is doubling down on on coal uh, <laughs> as as if this is 1880 in the Victorian days. <laughs> Well, as you say, echoing the cry of the great Lenin, what is to be done? Your present, you present what you call obvious 10-step approach to the de-Soviet, de-Sovietization of America. We don't have a lot of time left, but what steps might be taken, do you think, to stop the Sovietization of America? Well, uh, you know, a long, a long and honest look in the mirror. You know, I know I have my, my, my 10 steps here. I'd certainly... Uh, I, I think we need to cut back on the militarization of the United States. We need to stop, you know, glorifying our military. And I say that as a as a retired military right. officer. Sure. You know, all this talk about, you know, everyone in the military is a hero. Right. We need to support our troops. I do believe we need to support our troops. Right. But but we need to we need to stop using the military as a solution uh, for everything. Mm. Uh, we need to get out of countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and these other uh, bleeding ulcers, uh, you know, we're not winning hearts and minds, as as you said, Bert. Uh, and and these and the wars, you know, I think it was James Madison who said 
that you can't keep a democracy if you're fighting perpetual wars. You know, warfare breeds authoritarianism. Yes. You know, that, that's, that's the way they stifle dissent. They basically say, we're at war. America, we're at war. And, and you have, you know, patriotic people who hear that. It's like, well, we're at war, so I have to salute smartly, and, and I have to do what I'm told because we're at war. So we have to get out of this, this constantly we're at war mindset. And we've got to get out of the mindset of fear as well. Yes. Uh, uh, I, you know, I know I have a 10 steps here. You know, for example, we definitely don't want to be spending a trillion dollars on nuclear weapons. That's ridiculous. Yeah, really. um, we have to invest in our infrastructure, not in more nuclear weapons. But I think changing our mindset more than anything else, uh, get, rid of, you know, get rid of this fear, get rid of this militarization, you know, stop our incessant warfare, uh, you know, change education uh, so that yeah. we're, we're talking about you know, liberal arts again and, and critical thinking. Uh, and those types of things. And dissent, I think, too. change our political discourse in America. And, and being, you know, somebody, I don't know who said dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Being out there, being not afraid to speak our minds, to exercise, because, you know, the state doesn't own us. The state owned the Russian citizens, but it doesn't own us. And we have That's to right. remember that, I think. Absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating, and, and uh, your personal blog is Bracing Views, and I often write for Tom Dis Dispatch, which I highly recommend. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, you know, fostering a sense of what I would consider real patriotism, you know, what America... Well, thanks, thanks so much for having me, uh, Bert, and thanks for your interest in my work. And I'm going to go out with a song you know what I'm going to play, Back in the USSR, by the Beatles, <laughs> of course. A great choice. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Email me, Bert at BertCohen.com.
in the USSR. 